so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Before we get started with today's show, we want you to hear this brief message from Dan Darling and Trillian Newbell. We're excited about a brand new project, and it's called The Church and the Racial Divide. So, Trillia, maybe share a little bit of why why we're excited about it. Yeah, well, we're excited about it because this is about the church, and it is about the unity of the church. It's about what God says in His Word. It's actually a study. So churches can get together with small groups of people and study God's Word together about this topic. So what other way to not only equip and disciple, but encourage each other to learn more about what God says about racial reconciliation, harmony, unity, and this beautiful picture that we're going to see one day every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together. Yeah, it's it's Bible teaching, right? I mean, each session takes a passage of Scripture and is taught how it applies to race. You know, the Bible talks quite a bit about race. And what I think is helpful is that this, this is okay— people in their local churches opening the scriptures saying, what does the Bible say about this? This is about God's word and how we can live and grow together as a people uh, made in his image who have been united through Christ and who will be living and worshiping together forever. If your church is interested in this, uh, you can go to lifeway.com slash the church and the racial divide. You can download it as a video download. You can purchase the kit that has DVDs. There's all kinds of resources for you and your church. So we want to encourage you to get that. Sorry, I freaked up with the mouth. Oh, yeah, no, I was like, oh, we're recording. <laughs> no, we're, sure, yeah. we're live. I need the red light on. I need, I need all kinds of buttons. And- <laughs> Warnings. Yeah. <clears throat> um, one more time. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we're talking about what's going on in the world and our work here at the ERLC. With me in the studio today are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello. And Brent Leatherwood. Good afternoon, everybody. Always a great hello from Brent. And later in the show, we'll be talking to a special guest, Pastor Juan Sanchez, who is a pastor at High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. But before we get to that, let's go ahead and talk about the week. Lindsay, what's the URLC been talking about this week? So, pop quiz. Do you guys know who the first known Baptist missionary was? I only know because I very recently found out. Now, I'm hoping to learn from you right now. Well, you're cheaters because you read the show notes. But his name was George Lyle. And George Lyle was enslaved from birth and then shared the gospel beyond the United States borders. Oh, wow. So where did he share the gospel at? Where was he a missionary? Well, it's interesting you ask, Brent. Uh, He shared the gospel in Jamaica. And George Lyle went to Jamaica 10 years before William Carey went to India. Wow, so that's Kath- incredible. Yeah, Catherine Parks, she has a book uh, called Strong, and it's about how God used the lives of 11 ordinary men to do extraordinary things. And so uh, she's taken a section from that book and kind of reworked it for our site. And um, 
just honored George Lyle with his legacy with this article. And we want to celebrate the fact that the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention recently voted to approve the first Sunday in February as the annual George Lyle Church Planning Evangelism and Missions Day. Yeah, I mean, isn't it significant that the fact that the first known missionary is a is a former slave who then used his freedom to share the gospel with other people? And it says, I mean, Catherine does a great job highlighting the fact that he he went to preach the freedom that is found in Jesus. And you know that for somebody like George Lyle, his ability to communicate that, the depth and the meaning uh, of the kind of freedom that is offered to us in Christ uh, is something that, you know, it's important that we're having the opportunity to remember and to celebrate his life. Because as you mentioned, uh, we have for a long time, celebrated kind of these missionary pioneers, people like William Carey or Adoniram Judson, but George Lyle, who was a black man, was somebody who for a long time has been overlooked. And the the other thing that this makes me appreciate is the richness of the history of the SBC. And I think it's a richness that a lot of times people just aren't even exposed to. So I'm really thankful that, that Catherine put this down uh, for us all to enjoy and learn more about our denomination. Okay, next on the list, we have our colleague Jason Thacker, who we've talked about several times on this podcast because he's such a rock star. Hang on a second. I can't let us move on without acknowledging the way that you said pop quiz because like, you used that Boston accent again, and it's just a thing I love. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Oh, it's a ghost quiz. Or- it's smart car. <laughs> <laughs> and so and people, Jason who did Thacker- not, people who did not listen to this the episode airing right after the Super Bowl are not going to catch that inside joke. That's exactly right. But you should go back and catch it now. You so, should. Anyway, Lindsay, tell us about Jason's book. <laughs> so Jason Thacker. So he uh, has a book coming out next what? week. Woohoo! And uh, so he, we took an excerpt from that book, and it's called Artificial Intelligence Could Change the Human Body as We Know It. So he talks about transhumanism. Uh, and so the image that we picked for going along with this article is um, a man with a prosthetic arm. Yeah, and, and people are noticing the work uh, that Jason is doing. So just this week, he was over at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention moderating a discussion about technology and ethics. And I mean, it's just incredible what he is is doing right here at the URLC. Yes. So you can check that out on our site and then also go to Amazon. You'll find his book there. Uh, and then, so I want to touch back on something that several, I think several weeks ago, Brent touched on. Uh, Todd Brady has an article on our site about the 2,411 hoarded remains of aborted babies that were found in Indiana, and they were just recently laid to rest. They were buried, and they had funerals for them. Uh, So Todd Brady wrote a reflection about that, and we just wanted to highlight that to remind everyone that we care about unborn lives. We care about the mothers of those unborn children and that the work we do here at the ERLC, one of the major passions of the ERLC is to protect those unborn lives and to hold up their dignity. Yeah, I mean, when you think about this, I mean, honestly, it's chilling and it is gruesome just to think about it. Uh, There's a quote from the Indiana Attorney General, uh, and he described this as horrifying to anyone with normal sensibilities. And that's exactly right. I mean, Mm -hmm. abortion is a heinous evil. It is something that is right at the center of the ERLC's work. Pro-life advocacy and trying to advance the cause of human dignity is something that we proudly stand for and fight for week in and week out. And so when we see something like this, we do want to, as, as gruesome as it is, as hard, as difficult as it is to to grapple with the reality of thinking about these, these remains of these infants, we want people to see that that's the price. That is the, the moral tariff of abortion is uh, to, to have to grapple with even even awful things like this. 
Well, and as Todd did in this article, we don't just want to move past it as something that we're so used to encountering, but we want to grieve, mm. properly grieve. Exactly. Because it is something to grieve over. And speaking kind of of grief, Diane Langberg is a counselor, and she has a short video on our site that answers the question, how can churches help those who have experienced trauma? And most churches, most of our Southern Baptist churches, probably have people sitting in the pews or the chairs, if that's what you're using, um, that have experienced trauma of various sorts. So so I would encourage you to take a look at that video on ERLC.com. We also talked about on Capital Conversations a few days ago, we talked about the Senate voting on the on a package of pro-life bills. Josh, you want to tell us more about those? Yeah. So first of all, if you don't listen to Capital Conversations, that is our counterparts who are in Washington, D.C. They are our folks working on policy day in and day out. And that, their podcast is is incredibly popular. We would encourage you to check it out if you and never highly have. highly informative. That's right. Highly informative, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, Brent Leatherwood is a frequent guest on Capital Conversations. So you can you could check him out there as well. So anyway, they did a great job of helping us uh, stay informed about what was going on in the United States Senate this week where they where they voted on a package of pro-life bills. Uh, One uh, that focuses on infants who are born alive, and the other is for infants uh, acknowledging what we talked about last week on the podcast, the pain capable, like the the age at which these infants are able to feel and experience pain. Unfortunately, uh, both of these votes failed. And that's because uh, even though when when I tell you the numbers, you'll see that the pain capable uh, received uh, 53 yays and 44 nays, and the born alive vote had 56 yays and 41 nays. You might think to yourself, well, that's more than a majority. Why didn't that pass? But but in the Senate, uh, part of their procedure is something called cloture. And to invoke cloture, or basically to be able to proceed to the actual vote, you have to cross the 60 vote threshold. And so uh, these Neither of these, unfortunately, made it there, although they did receive more votes than they have in the past. And so, That's right. So, so progress is still being made. Uh, we just have a few more votes to go. It is important that these votes continue to happen so that there are markers and we can continue to see progress or maybe where we need uh, to do more work as citizens who are engaged on this issue. That's exactly right. And so we we do. I mean, we just want to ratchet up the pressure. We want to put people on the record, uh, whether they stand for or against life. And uh, we have, I just wanted to share this quote uh, with you from the president of the ERLC, Russell Moore. He said, it ought to be a national scandal that the U.S. Senate failed to advance either of these basic and common sense bills that would protect human life. I couldn't put it any better better than that. Uh, but it's obviously something that we at the ERLC will continue to to champion and to fight for. So the issue of life is something that we're working on not only here in the U.S., but also abroad. So dun, 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 we had an, an announcement yesterday. And Brent, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So yesterday, you know, the, the ERLC, we've been working for years in the uh, international context, trying to advance advocacy for human dignity issues. Well, yesterday we just took the the next step in doing that uh, because we announced we are engaging in Northern Ireland, which is a part of the United Kingdom. Abortion was recently decriminalized there, and the Christians who live in Northern Ireland and call that part of the United Kingdom home have been plunged into a context where they don't have a pro-life movement. In many ways, they find themselves in the same place that Christians found themselves in 1973 in the immediate aftermath of Roe versus Wade. We had some partners reach out to us uh, after that vote was taken and said, hey, could y'all come over here and engage with the great pro-life stuff that you do in America? Could you, could you actually do it here? 
And we've responded to that call. Uh, so we're really excited about it. We're going to place our first ever ultrasound machine in an international context uh, there in Belfast. We're going to partner up with several other organizations to make sure that Dr. Moore is a featured voice at a pro-life conference. And we're going to provide curriculum uh, that can be used both in an American context uh, to talk about human dignity, but also in an international context. So this is something we're really excited about to equip churches with. Yeah, Brent, so you mentioned the ultrasound being placed in Northern Ireland. How does the ERLC do that? Yeah, so the ERLC, we have a, a small ministry. It's called the Psalm 139 Project, Psalm 139, based on the chapter uh, from the Book of Psalms. And we raise money for the purposes of just placing a machine and training the local staff there about how to operate the machine. So we're one of the few nonprofits out there that has a ministry like this where we can assure folks who want to invest in that that 100% of their resources will go towards that machine and that training. And it doesn't come to any of us on the operational side. It's a, it's a project we're really proud of. We've been able to place 21 machines around the nation. We've got plans for four more in this coming year because of the generosity of pro-life supporters who have come alongside us. Yeah, and all the research out there points to the fact that when the mom gets to see her unborn child's heartbeat, she is more likely to choose life. That's exactly right. And so that's why we want to be involved in doing this here in the U.S. and throughout the world, because we want to save as many lives as we can. Absolutely. So, guys, that's what's happening on ERLC.com. So that brings us to our culture section for the week. Brent, what have you been watching in the world of culture this week? Well, I got to say, not just in uh, our culture, but even in our office, it seems like a lot of the conversation this week has revolved around the coronavirus. And, and it seems like it's that everywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and everywhere you look, people are wondering about it. What does this mean? How is this different from the flu, which we've talked about before? Uh, ways that you can prepare. Uh, so it was certainly a topic of conversation uh, in and around culture this week. So there are now new cases that are popping up across the globe. Uh, Latin America came on board for the first time with someone who tested positive in Brazil. And here in California, in the United States, in California, we have the first uh, case where there does not seem to be a known origin, which analysts are saying actually means that the uh, virus itself is is out in the wild and there are cases out there that are going unreported. A lot of folks are paying attention to what's going on in Italy uh, because there seems to be a bloom of cases there and um, they're watching how that society uh, copes with it. It's literally all over the world right now. I saw something about Japan uh, maybe canceling schools. Do you know what that's about? Yeah, so the prime minister of Japan came out and they are recommending that all schools in Japan close beginning this week through March 31st, which that just seems like an incredible reaction to this. But maybe that's exactly right. what you need to do. I mean, they're they're close to obviously the Wuhan province in China where this began. I can right. tell that I'm becoming a, an adult instead of a kid because my first reaction was to think about all the complications and the and you know the frustrations that must come along with that instead of thinking about as a kid, like what a great thing it would be to be out of school for a month. Right, like, and watch movies all day long. Uh, also, on I was listening to the briefing and, and Dr. Moeller mentioned this morning that they're talking about possibly canceling the Summer Olympics because mm -hmm. of all the moving parts. Like food orders have to go in pretty soon and you just don't think about wow. what, if you rescheduled or if you change locations, what that would mean. Right. I, I heard a podcast this week. They were talking about how do they deal with the torch relay that is happening uh, prior to the Olympics. It's going through a number of parts of Asia. Folks gather to watch it come through their towns, their province, and 
officials are worried about that. So all these things are adding up and and officials are are trying to figure out how to cope with it. Other folks who are trying to figure out how to cope with it are church leaders. Uh, So I read an article in the Washington Post this week about how churches on the international scene were dealing with Ash Wednesday. So here's a quote. In the Philippines, Catholic priests were urged to sprinkle ashes on parishioners instead of marking their foreheads through direct contact. In Italy, several churches closed for Ash Wednesday. They just they decided to give up and, and not hold services. And in South Korea, a secretive megachurch that has been at the center of the virus's spread was actually shut down by the government. Hmm. Here at home, our own government is responding uh, pretty strongly to this. Uh, the president this week sent a supplemental funding request over to Congress for $2.5 billion. Uh, some other leaders on the Hill suggested that maybe more would be needed. Uh, one thing that was done for sure, though, was Vice President Mike Pence was placed in charge as the head of the government's response uh, to this here domestically. Yeah, and so, you know, I saw some late-night comedians who were having fun with the uh, the president appointing the vice president. And, you know, I think, look, late-night comedians make fun of everything. I I can deal with that. But honestly, I can't think of a a better person. This has definite precedent uh, in the past in terms of presidents tapping their vice presidents to head up major task force or initiatives like this. And, uh, you know, as Christians, we should be prayerful that our government and medical health professionals and literally re- and scientific researchers, everyone involved, uh, we should pray for their success in trying to both develop vaccines and to contain the spread of this virus. Well, the other reason that, you know, we should be thankful for a response like that, it wasn't that long ago that President Barack Obama appointed Vice President Joe Biden to be the head of uh, the Cancer Moonshot initiative that the Obama administration announced. That Vice President's being put in charge of uh, very sensitive items is is actually not that unheard of. And so I, I'm, I'm just glad that we've got some direction there. Uh, the CDC also has come out this week and saying that Americans should be prepared for the coronavirus to come here domestically. So we've been talking in the office about who are preppers and who who's not a prepper and what we should be doing. So I want to know your food of choice that if you had to run to Costco and load up on it, what would it be? Gosh, uh, I know at our house, it would be a pretty basic thing of my son and my daughter both eat hot dogs all the time. So we'd buy a bunch of hot dogs. You could freeze them. You could put them in your refrigerator, whatever. And, uh, you know, for me, frozen pizzas and Pop-Tarts. Mm, the Pop-Tarts. Pop-Tarts. Uh, I hot see fudge you. Sunday Pop-Tarts. Craft macaroni That's and the cheese. Way to go. We see, would I have like, a lot of that. I like the s'mores Pop-Tarts. Also I'd, good. I'd probably load up on those. Uh, I, I got to go with rice and beans. I just okay. feel, I feel like you can keep those around for a while and you can do a lot of stuff with them. We actually eat a lot of rice and beans anyways at, at our house. So uh, moving on uh, elsewhere on the international front, I just thought this was noteworthy. Uh, scientists said that last week Antarctica hit 70 degrees for the first time. Now, to be clear, this isn't like directly by the South Pole. This is a peninsula that extends almost up to uh, South America. But it's a noteworthy moment that I think culturally, it caused some reaction in the scientific community. Uh, I just want to know what their previous high temp was. Uh, elsewhere, Justin Bieber gave a pretty uh, open and honest interview about his faith. Uh, so I thought that was interesting and noteworthy. Uh, a quote says here from the report, Bieber 25 said he believed the story of the Bible for a long time, but quote, never really implemented it into his own life. He said he believes people misunderstand who Christ is. Quote from Bieber, Jesus wasn't this religious elite guy. He was in the dirt, and he found me in the dirt, and he pulled me out. This is so surreal to me for, like, 
a number of reasons. One, because Justin Bieber is 25, and that just seems hard to fathom. Uh, but also because, you know, in this, it's 2020, and something that, you know, two things that I could not have ever predicted 10 years ago were that Justin Bieber and Kanye West would be two of the kind of foremost spokespeople for Jesus in the public square right now. I mean, this is just not a thing that anyone, uh, especially me, was anticipating, but it is great to see both of these men whose lives have evidently been changed uh, by the love and grace of God found in Jesus Christ to bear witness to that kind of redemptive love in, in public. Well, it's amazing and the cultural impact uh, to think about what could happen uh, through their lives and their witness to Christ is amazing. So I'm thankful for it and pray that the Lord grows him and deepens his faith and uses him in great ways. Absolutely. No one is ever too far gone no. uh, for the reach of Jesus. All right. On the political front, Nevada happened. The Nevada caucuses have happened and Vermont Senators Bernie Sanders, he came out on top once again. In fact, he finished in a really strong position. And overall, he's in a pretty strong position to eventually get the nominee. Now, there's still a lot of races to come that are going to provide much-needed clarity, particularly with South Carolina coming up and Super Tuesday when 14 states around the country will vote. But needless to say, the the race is starting to shape up. Sanders is clearly uh, taken hold of the the kind of liberal wing of the Democratic Party. And so they're they're waiting to see if someone from the kind of center-left uh, lane will emerge to take him on head-to-head. Yeah, he delivered just an absolutely dominant performance in, uh, and Dr. Moore got on me for saying Nevada, uh, Nevada. Nevada. Uh, but he, yeah, he dominated. I mean, with college educated, with non-college educated, he won basically every group except for, I think, over 50 or over 60, uh, but he was just head and shoulders above the rest of the field uh, in terms of that. And it is going to be really interesting to see what happens on Super Tuesday. Well, a number of pundits also think that South Carolina, though, is, is going to be a pivotal moment, especially for the candidacy of Vice President Joe Biden. He seems to be polling, continuing to poll uh, very strongly there. We will find that out tomorrow on Saturday. Uh, and then after that, another pivotal moment will come up on Tuesday when Super Tuesday occurs. And that is where uh, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg has been focusing his vast amount of resources. This week, he crossed the threshold of $500 million in advertising. So he he blew well past the previous record of 330-something-odd million dollars. He's now well into $500 million just on advertising. This is an insane amount of money that is being poured into this race. It's all his own. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. His money, which is just it's him, mind-blowing. His, it's his it's his own. It's Bloom Billions. Bloom Billions. Bloom billions. That's nice. Now, when do, when do we find out who the Democratic nominee is? Well, so the, the Democratic National Convention is not until later this summer. Later. Most folks think, though, that after Super Tuesday, this field will be winnowed significantly, and we will probably be down to two or three candidates. However, there are some folks that also say one strategy is to just go longer. They award delegates on a proportional basis. So theoretically, you could kind of have a, a ghost ship candidacy. <laughs> Don't say ghost ship, ghost God. Don't do that. Uh, but there, there are folks who think that uh, you could just kind of go on in perpetuity and when well, I guess not in perpetuity. Yeah, but on and on. And <laughs> on and on and just kind of pick up delegates here and there and then be a force at the national convention. Yeah, but Brent, before we move on, we got to ask the question. So for people who aren't like, you know, politicos or avid, you know, politics watchers, what 
what is Super Tuesday? Because we keep talking about Super Tuesday. Like, what is it? Super Tuesday is when 14 states uh, across the country will be casting their votes at the same time. It is essentially a national primary. There are folks who are saying we just need to have that. That's what Super Tuesday more or less functions as. It it originally started with a group of, of southern states coming together. Now it, it is more national in nature. So California will be voting. Massachusetts will be voting. Um, so we're going to get a pretty good look at who has a nationwide campaign apparatus uh, after Super Tuesday. In other news, uh, this week, uh, a kind of a sadder story. Basketball superstar Dwayne Wade and his wife, acclaimed actress Gabrielle Union, uh, their child came out as transgender. And this child's 12 years old, I believe. And uh, it's just one of those cultural moments that you are sad about and you uh, just lament where our culture has has gone to. Yeah, so like Dwayne, Dwayne Wade and his family have uh, made news because they've, they've brought this out publicly, but also they've been very, very accepting and affirming of this. And, you know, it's an issue for us to, to take a second to deal with just because... Uh, this and questions similar to it are, are things that we hear uh, from folks all the time. They reach out to us to ask us, how do I handle it when, when my child says that they're transgender? Uh, what, what am I supposed to do? What does it look like to uh, have a Christ-like and loving response in such a situation? And so, you know, lo- looking at this situation, the thing that we want to say is good is that, you know, good for these parents for loving their child. Uh, we we want to always encourage parents, no matter what, uh, th- there is nothing that has to to, to be an impediment to you loving your child. At the same time, loving does not always look like affirmation. And so for Christian parents, uh, as they face these and other difficult kinds of circumstances involving their children, the big thing that we want to encourage them to do is that is to know that you don't ever have to make the choice between showing the love of Christ to your child and denying what God has said is true. If you find yourself in that kind of a situation, or if you know someone who is there, you always, you know, as the most loving thing that you can do is to as you are trying to care for this person, to point them back toward what God has said is true about them and about about the people that He created. Lindsay, I'm I'm curious. You're the you're the queen of of content for the RLC. Are there any resources that we have on transgenderism and uh, gender dysphoria that that maybe parents or just folks who are interested in knowing more about this could could have or lean on? Yeah. So we've got some articles on our site, but uh, most notably, uh, our friend and colleague Andrew T. Walker has a book, God in the Transgender Debate, and it's a very helpful resource. Uh, it's uh, will help you navigate through some of these very sticky situations in a way that, like Josh said, honors the Lord and helps you uh, love your family members and your friends and your neighbors, but also realizing that that doesn't necessarily mean affirmation. Loving doesn't mean affirmation. Uh, So we would encourage you to check that out on Amazon and then to look at our different resources on ERLC.com. Yeah. And he unpacked that uh, in such a helpful pastoral Mm -hmm. way. And uh, and so that's a, a great resource as well. All right. So on the lighter side, let's finish on kind of some up notes. Pictures from the new movie, The Batman, were released this week as they were filming it. Did you did you see the photos? I've Josh? seen the photos, and I got to tell you, this is something I'm so uh, pumped for. I get super like I get all the way sucked into these superhero movies, and so uh, whether it's Marvel or DC, I honestly don't like have a preference. I just I'm just here for it. So I, they, they were filming in Scotland, and uh, the photos for those of you who may not have seen uh, the Batman was riding around a cemetery, and he had no cape. This no is concerning. Although I was told after the fact that sometimes that gets added in by CGI later. That seems like it. That, that seems like it might be the case. The um, 
I got to tell you, I'm skeptical of Robert Pattinson as Batman, but mm. I'm also, you know, I'm hopeful because, you know, I just want to enjoy the movie. So, you know. You, you got to have somebody with a good, strong jawline. That's right. Right. For the- I think he's got that. I mean, I couldn't have that. Maybe you could. You've got a good jaw. Who? Hey, I appreciate that. What was he in again? Robert Pattinson? Well, he, 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 the vampire movie, wasn't it? Yeah, he was in Twilight. Team Edward. He, Twilight. That's, that's, Twilight. 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 Yes. Yeah. that's right. He but was he also was, Cedric Diggory in Harry Potter. In Harry Potter, that's right. All right. Similarly, uh, Friends reunion. It's like back to the 90s here. Mm-hmm. Friends reunion. And for those of you who are thinking, oh, Batman. That No, I'm thinking the original. Not, well, I guess not even the original. The one that came out in the 90s was Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. Who was the best Batman. I'm just saying. That's a take right there. Yeah, it is. Uh the Friends reunion, uh, it was announced. It long, you know, people, fans have been asking for this, I guess, because I'm not really a fan, but friends have been asking for this, and they are going to get paid for coming back together. These Friends cast members. The original six. They're oh. all coming back. Oh, wow. Lindsay, what do you what, think about what that? Are they, well, what are they getting paid is what I want to know. Reportedly, according to Verge Media, they're going to be uh, paid $3 million each, which is more than they were being paid back when they left. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing something like they were making a million dollars an episode at the end of the series. I get that it's super popular. I know tons of people who uh, like and enjoy the show. It's not one that's for me, but, you know, this is something that I know tons of people have been clamoring for and really looking forward to. Well, and I just looked it up because I was curious. In their original contracts for the first season, they were paid $22,500 per episode. So they've come a long way. I mean, for what it's worth, I would would do that. I mean, I I would take that. And then, hey, for for sports fans like me, spring training baseball, the first pitches of spring training baseball uh, were delivered. (laughs) The first pitches (laughs) were delivered. I wasn't trying to get out of that one. Spring spring training baseball is back. For a Braves fan like me, I'm excited uh, to see the boys from Atlanta back to be playing. So, yeah. I should be a bigger baseball fan than I am. I wasn't raised on it because I grew up in Florida, and I just feel like it's football. But what I do appreciate about baseball are the snacks. You like the snacks? From the concession stand. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool. Pretzels and mustard and Coke. Yeah. Well, speaking of spring training, uh, this Sunday is the Williamson County six-year-old baseball uh, evaluation. So I'll be out there on the field with my son after church on Sunday, and we'll be, you know, doing all the baseball things. Evaluation. Is that tryouts? It's basically tryouts. Okay, it's tryouts. Gotcha. Okay. But when your dad's the coach, you just kind of get on the team. So, Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. Today, we're excited to talk to Pastor Juan Sanchez. Juan is the pastor of High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. He actually serves as a trustee uh, of the ERLC, and we're really looking forward to this conversation today. So Juan, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing in ministry right now. Yeah, so I live in Austin, Texas. I'm the senior pastor of High Point Baptist Church, and uh, my wife and I have five daughters. We've been in Austin. This summer will be 15 years. Oh wow! Uh, we met at we met at the University of Florida. I'm originally from Puerto Rico, and at eight years of age, we moved from Puerto Rico to Central Florida, and so I'm uh, somewhat of a Florida transplant and now a Texan by choice. Well, Juan, go Gators! I graduated That's from the right. University of Florida, so well, good for you, go Gators! Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, in this season of life and ministry, what's one thing that God is teaching you? Yeah, so I'm preaching through Ruth right now, and I'm preparing this week, Ruth chapter three, and it has been such an amazing book, and 
just the overwhelmingly clear message of God's providence. He is guiding all things, operating through human actions to bring about all his appointed ends. And he does everything well. And it's just been so beautiful to see how, you know, in the life of Naomi and Ruth, they have no clue what's going on. But we get to look into their lives, how God is bringing everything about, even through their actions and strategic plans, to bring about the king that Israel needs. Uh, because it's written in the book of, in the time of the judges. And so that just encourages me that no matter what I'm facing and no matter what I'm going through, no matter what difficulties my family's going through, you know, God doesn't waste our suffering and he stands behind everything for his glory and for our good. And, and that's just been really helpful for me and for our church. Gosh, that is so good. Uh, and we ask that question every time just to try to focus in on like one, you know, one thing that God is teaching, whoever it is we're talking to. And every week it's always different. And it's it's always something that is super helpful. So I love what you shared there uh, as you're kind of preaching through Ruth and, and what the Holy Spirit is teaching you through that. Switching gears for a second, you know, our podcast, it focuses on Christians and culture. And so one of the things we like to ask is just tell us a little bit about like what are what things in culture are you and the people around you paying attention to right now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's... I think it's hard to escape the reality of the upcoming elections in 2020. You know, the, the right. debates, the Democrat debates. I listened to the New York Times daily podcast. Oh, yeah. And, um, and NPR's up first. And so I guess on my mind, you know, I, today was a, the coronavirus and the election, the election and the coronavirus. And, you know, just uh, all those things that tend to overwhelm you. But again, just going back to the, the reality of Ruth, that no matter what's going on in, in our culture, in our world, God is on his throne. He's in control and and he's guiding everything to its appointed end. But, you know, it can be discouraging, not, not the elections themselves, but the way that people are talking to each other and talking about each other, talking about the candidates, talking about, you know, government, you know, people idolizing candidates and governments and parties. You know, it just seems like that's all the chatter. That's what's going around. And, and as a pastor, I have to try to shepherd our people through that, you know, to, to help them think about appropriate engagement in our culture, but the reality that our citizenship is in heaven. And Juan, you mentioning Ruth and Ruth being set in the time of judges reminds me. And then you mentioning what you're paying attention to in culture reminds me that uh, in women's Bible study, we're studying judges, and surely yeah. it, it's not worse than it was in the time of judges. That's right. <laughs> you know? That's right. And remembering that the Lord is faithful and He's going to build His church. So thank you for those reminders. Um, yeah. We want to ask you about priorities. So you're involved in ministry at various levels, from pastoring a local church, as you said, to being a TGC council member, to your involvement with the SBC, including yeah. being an ERLC trustee. Yeah, so thank, thank you for yeah. doing yes, that. Yes, we thank you yeah, my pleasure. So how do you think about these different roles and how do you prioritize them? I yeah. guess we, we should have mentioned your family too, being included that's right. in all of that. that. But that's right. And, you know, I think, you know, one, one pastor that had written some things on productivity was helpful to me as I was working through that. And just as, as, as he plans his week with his wife, just a reminder, you know, to think about your roles and your responsibilities. And so just on a weekly basis, thinking through, okay, you know, what is my role as a Christian, as a man of God? What are my responsibilities? What is, you know, my role as a husband and responsibilities, role as a father, you know, we have five daughters and now into grandparenting and in, into pastoring. And so first and foremost, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to have to answer to God for how I live my life. And I'm going to have to answer to God for how I love my wife as Christ loves the church and how I shepherded my children. So no matter what I do, those are the, the, the priorities that I have to account for before God. And then, and then after that, for the church, you know, as elders, we'll give an account before God for how we shepherd the church. And it's our responsibility to present everyone complete in Christ. And so at High Point, our pastors, we we take that seriously. We pray regularly for our members. Um, and then anything that we do beyond that is just, you know, however the Lord opens doors, um, how strategic something is. And, um, and I want to be involved in things that are strategic and kingdom advancing. And so the, the way that I think about it is I want to be involved outside the church. I want to be involved in in the kind of ministry that advances the gospel and, and fulfills a great commission. And my part in that has been primarily uh, training pastors. And because of my history and my Spanish uh, language, I've tended to focus in Latin America or Spanish-speaking countries because right now there's just a huge need. So, you know, my involvement with the SBC is in, in, in to serve the network of churches that I'm a part of. And um, uh, I'm thankful for the work that the ERLC does. And so I'm happy to serve as a trustee. I'm very new at that. So I'm still learning uh, what that means. But I want to focus on things that are strategic, you know, gospel advancing, great commission fulfilling. And because of the way that God has made me to help in the Spanish speaking world, train up the next generation of pastors and, and to raise up those people that will be writing theology and history and who who will be leading the church into the future after my generation is gone. Gosh, it's so good. And I love how you prioritize the kingdom as you're thinking through uh, the different responsibilities and roles that you have. Did you mention grandchildren? I do. Uh, yeah, we have four grandchildren. We have, um, so my wife and I have five girls, uh, all girls from, from 28 to 17, but we're starting to have grandchildren. We have four of them. We have uh, girl, boy, boy, girl. Oh, and wow. so, in, in so fact, we have fun. one that's just a few weeks old. Oh, I hear that's why you have children is to have grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a sweet time. <laughs> yeah. One more question that kind of gets after, you know, where you're serving the kingdom there in Austin. You know, you mentioned uh, living there, serving there. And Austin is a city that's unlike a lot of other cities. You know, keep Austin weird is the thing uh, that yeah. you hear a whole lot. And so one of the questions that we wanted to ask you is what kind of both like challenges and opportunities uh, have you faced or encountered as you've been doing ministry in this kind of unique context? Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably say the challenges are whatever challenges face every pastor in every church in every context. You know, you have those challenges, the challenges of, you know, people that are coming out of sin, people that are broken by sin, people who are struggling with life, trying to trying to be faithful, just the, the daily challenges of shepherding a flock, preparing sermons. Uh, leading a staff. So so those challenges, as far as the cultural challenges, I don't know. I mean, I've been here almost 15 years. And to me, I, I tend to see them as, as opportunities. So in Austin, it is highly, highly unchurched. And so evangelism, while it can be challenging, um, it's not like the the Bible Belt where where people think they're Christians because they kind of grew up in a church or were born in a Christian family. I mean, here people, when they come to church, they they really intend to come to church either to find out or 
or because they're Christians. But, um, you know, Austin is very progressive, very liberal in many ways. You know, there's a there's a cultural mindset that is is not Christian friendly and in some cases anti-Christian. So you, you have those kinds of challenges. But when I look at the first century church, it's nothing compared to what the apostles went through, to what the early church went through, you know, the persecution, the oppression from the government and exactly. other religious kind of groups. And so I, I find Austin a refreshing place to minister because the nations are coming to us. You know, we have a uh, about 170 people a day moving into town. You know, there's a, there's an excitement here. It's a young city. People want to be here. And we just have a tremendous opportunity to to share Christ with the people that are moving here, whether it's it's from California, from another state, or or from another country or another nation. So there are some challenges, but I would say there's just tremendous opportunities for the advance of the gospel. Man, I just love that. The look, Looking at that and what some people might see as obstacles, you look at as opportunities and ways to uh, bring the gospel to people. I mean, one, one of the very cool things that stands out to me about what you just said is just that as you're encountering people, you're not having to convince people necessarily of their lostness. You know, they're, they're there right. because they're, they want to hear about Jesus and the words of life. And so, that's right, Pastor Juan, we just want to say thanks so much uh, for taking a few minutes to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks, Josh and Lindsay, and go Gators. Go Gators. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where each week we share with you the things that we can't stop talking about with one another. But first, Josh, let's hear a word from our sponsor. This episode of the ERLC podcast was sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Jesus and the Very Big Surprise, a new children's storybook by well-known singer and TV presenter Randall Goodgame. This beautifully illustrated hardback book is based on the parable in Luke 12 and teaches children that Jesus will return, and when he does, there will be an amazing party where, surprise, he will serve his faithful servants. From the same best-selling series that brought you God's very good idea and the garden, the curtain, and the cross. Find out more about Jesus and the very big surprise at thegoodbook.com. Brent, what's on your mind this week? Well, so probably like a lot of folks out there, for, for whatever reason, the coronavirus is on my mind. And NPR released what I thought was a helpful guide for how to prepare your home for coronavirus. And what I liked about it, though, is it didn't just say, hey, here are 10 foods that you need to have. Like, okay, that's good. It actually started going a little bit deeper and saying, hey, how do you prepare for other folks in your family that maybe not immediately come to mind, folks around you? So I thought that was helpful. We'll post it in the show notes. I don't want to add to the hysteria. I'm just saying there are some resources that are out there that, you know, are worth looking at. It was very down to earth. One one that I saw, not in that, but in another article that someone had posted said, you know, you should have kitchen, big kitchen bags, big garbage bags, so they could serve as body bags. In yeah, you case see you that, need them. See, that, that kind that, of stuff is not helpful. That adds to the hysteria. We don't, we don't want to do that here on our podcast, but uh, that, that would be why that's not uh, my my resource of the week here on the, the lunchroom. Right. Well, you stole mine because I've been thinking through coronavirus prep and told my husband we need to buy a few things like Pop-Tarts and macaroni and cheese this weekend before everybody else starts. But so another thing that I'll mention that I keep my eye on 
um, is since I'm a first time mom and my daughter's just about to be one, I have lots of kid questions when it comes to illnesses or essential oils or cough medicine or whatever it might be. And, uh, somebody I like to follow, his name is Justin Smith. I follow him on social media, but he's also written articles for us. And he is a part of a blog called Cook's Children. So we'll post the link, but he's, he goes by the Doc Smitty and he has really helpful, balanced takes on a lot of things. So I can just go look and read his articles about them. And um, he doesn't send me into an hysteria when I'm wondering what to do when my child has a fever. So I appreciate that. That's really helpful. So he's actually a, a pediatrician? Yeah, oh, sorry. Yes. He's a pediatrician. He's just not like a WebMD he or anything. He knows what he's talking. It's not yeah, like Josh and me just posting random medical advice. Yeah, no, okay. no. He's actually a pediatrician, and he's friends with Philip Bethencourt. So, uh, yeah, he's a trusted source. That's awesome. Okay, well, for mine this week, I – listen – I'm, I'm excited about this uh, because anybody who knows me knows that like I have like a mild obsession with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Like I, you know, just, I think The Rock is awesome. And I have thought he was awesome ever since he was a pro wrestler. But if you go back, man, I mean, talk about things that have, you know, moved on up in the world. Uh, he's gone from the world of uh, professional wrestling to being the highest paid actor in the world and maybe the coolest guy on earth. But anyway, uh, this connected with for me because unfortunately, and this is obviously very sad, uh, you know, his dad uh, recently passed away. And so there was a video of him doing the eulogy at his father's funeral. And I had seen it floating around, but somebody texted me and said, do you know where that is? And honestly, I didn't know. So they they told me, and it's at Idlewild Baptist Church in Florida. So Florida has mm-hmm. been a Florida podcast. But anyways, at Idlewild Baptist Church, where Ken Witten, who is just an absolute boss, uh, is the pastor, has been for a while. And The Rock is standing in that pulpit giving a eulogy for his dad. Now, as far as I know, The Rock is not actually a believer. And so this is not so much to comment on, oh, look at The Rock's Christian faith or anything like that. But one of the things that it did remind me of is that you know, sometimes people question the value or the importance of churches and communities. Uh, and this is just one example among a thousand that we could probably come up with if we just started talking about it right now of ways that Christians and churches uh, play vital roles in their community. And so even being able to to serve as a as a venue or a forum uh, for The Rock to, to be there, to eulogize his dad, for them to have that funeral, uh, just kind of testifies to the importance and significance of churches in these kind of communities. Yeah, and I, I think it also speaks to just kind of a, a natural human longing to honor our dead. And, and churches can play a significant role, an instrumental role in doing that. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, when we think about the fact that when we do funerals, there's a reason that we want to go uh, retreat to these these places where we think about things that are sacred. And so uh, this just stood out to me as I was, um, you know, as I was mindlessly scrolling through social media this week to make that connection between The Rock and a church that I love that is, you know, a pulpit that this pastor who faithfully proclaims the gospel week in and week out uh, stands there to preach. And so anyway, that's what's on my mind. Well, each week at the end of every episode, we want to leave you with a helpful ERLC resource. So, Lindsay, tell us about our ERLC resource this week. Okay, so we'll stay with the kids theme from me, and we're going to hear a talk from uh, Phil Vischer, who y'all might know as... The creator of VeggieTales. Yay! So VeggieTales, VeggieTales. Which I'm excited to introduce my daughter to, but this talk is called Beyond VeggieTales, Forming the Moral Imagination of Your Kids. He talks about how we're to use creativity and things like shows and movies to help point our kids to something better in our case and bigger in our case. It's the story of the Bible, story of the creation, fall, redemption, and the hope that we have in Christ. 
Well, we'll get to that clip in just a moment. And we just want to say before we sign off here, thanks so much for listening to the show every week. Uh, we've heard uh, a lot of positive feedback since we kicked this thing off about seven weeks ago. And so just as a reminder, you can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please uh, consider helping spread the word by posting about it on social media, or you can go into your podcast app and leave us a rating or a just a brief review. It helps other people uh, discover the podcast and find out about the show. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we will be back next week with more content. Thanks for listening. So I was uh, telling stories with VeggieTales for about 10 years, and we were retelling Bible stories, and we were teaching Christian values, and we were teaching Christian morals. And it was all very good. It was very valuable. But I started wondering if maybe it wasn't enough. If, if maybe, I mean, I actually started to look back at one point, and I thought, am, am I persuading kids to behave Christianly without teaching them Christianity? And I got concerned about that because, you know, some kids can do it. Some kids, you say, hey, hey, shape up and fly straight. And they say, okay, look at me. And other kids, it's really hard and they can't do it. But that's not the whole point of Christianity. The point of Christianity is that none of us are good enough except for the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. So I realized I needed to go to help kids. I needed to go deeper after VeggieTales. I launched something called What's in the Bible, and it was an attempt to answer all the big questions, to basically take this and say, what is this? Where did it come from? Who wrote it? Why can we trust it? What difference does it make in my life? And I decided to go all the way through the Bible with kids uh, from Genesis to Revelation. And I got, I'm getting to Genesis, and there's a hinge point in Genesis. There's something, uh, there's a point in Genesis that changes everything, changes world history, changes the rest of the Bible. And it's this simple line, sin entered the world. And I thought, okay, that is so huge for kids that are wondering if, if God loves me and he's all powerful, why is everything so messed up? If God is all loving and he can do anything, why are there bullies at school? If God is all loving and he can do anything, why is grandma sick? Sin entered the world. And I realized I have to, it's not enough to give kids words. If we're building ultimately moral imagination, which comes from a spiritual foundation, we need a visual language for this stuff. How could I visually represent sin entering the world? <laughs>